But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you will speak to us this morning. And we, we are just so thankful that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are there, Lord. Jesus, you are present. So even, even in this moment, to have you with us is the greatest honor of our week, Lord, of our lives to walk in your presence, but to be in your presence today and to pause in our lives and recognize you are here. And so we thank you for that. And we, Lord, we just, uh, there, there is a, an excitement, Lord. There's an energy when we begin to think about the resurrection. Looking back over 2,000 years, an event that changed everything. Not just the world, not just history, but changed, literally changed eternity. And, and, and we feel that, that sense. There's even an anticipation, Lord, to hear the story again because it is our living hope. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just fill our hearts. Father, would you speak? Speak to each heart, personally, individually, as you see fit. Would you just say to each of us what we need to hear as we go through your word? And everything that's superfluous and everything that's unnecessary and everything that, that comes from the heart of man, I would pray that, that stuff would just end up set aside. But what would remain, Lord, would be the seed of the truth implanted in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. What you want us to hear this morning, let us hear. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. We're just going to do that for 45 minutes. <laughs> because he is risen indeed. A marvelous, wonderful story. And once again, we're like we've been doing this week, last week with the triumphal entry and, and on, on Good Friday, we just went through the crucifixion. And now, this morning, we're just going to go through the story. Let the Bible speak. Let the story be what it is and, and, and hear this word of truth. But, but I have to ask you a question before we get into the study this morning. Have you heard of Methuselah? I'm not talking about the old dude from, you know, Genesis chapter 5 mentioned there in the, in the line from, from Seth to Noah. I, I'm talking about a different Methuselah. Maybe you read this. Some of you perhaps have. Some have heard about this. But in the most recent dispatch from Jerusalem, it's a little magazine put out by Bridges for Peace, we're told we find a 1963 excavation of Herod's palace at Masada unearthed a sealed jar containing 2,000-year-old date palm seeds. Now, that's not new news. That, that has been on the, uh, that's been known for a long, long time. Date palm seeds perfectly preserved in a jar for 2,000 years. The arid climate and the mounds of dirt and the clay jar itself kept him perfectly preserved. But no one knew what to do with them. So for 40 years, they sat in storage until... Two doctors were called in, doctors Sarah Salon and Elaine Salloway, who began a project to revitalize these seeds. They soaked them in a special mixture of enzymatic water and fertilizer. And then on Tube Shavat, they planted them back in 2005. Planted these 2,000-year-old date palm seeds. Tube Shavat is uh, the Jewish... New year for trees. That's nice. The trees ought to have a new year. So they planted them in 2005. Two months later, one sprouted and grew. The oldest seed in history to germinate, and they named it Methuselah. <laughs> so now you know Methuselah, right? Well, they took Methuselah, and they transplanted this date palm tree to the Ereva Institute and there they confirmed it was, in fact, a male date palm tree. Now, you may not know this, but date palms, you need male and you need female. For the female to bear dates, there has to be a male to pollinate the female. Kind of like cherry trees will do the same thing. I never understood this. We bought a cherry tree years ago, planted it in the yard, nothing happened. 
I'm like, come on. I paid good money for this. I mean, like 10, 11 bucks. I, I don't know what's going on here. Well, the date palm needs a male and a female. So they have Methuselah standing there, sad sap, all alone. You're welcome. <laughs> Dr. Salon went to work again. They took more date palm seeds. These were 2,000-year-old seeds discovered in yet another sealed jar, this time at Qumran in Israel. And they did the same process with these seeds, and several of them sprouted, and tests revealed one of the sprouts was indeed female, Hannah. They named it Hannah. And they planted Hannah and Methuselah, and obviously these two had eyes for each other, because <laughs> Dr. Salon collected carefully pollen from Methuselah and brushed it onto Hannah's flowers. And in September of 2020, during a global pandemic, 111 dates were harvested from this marriage of Methuselah and Hannah. Actual honey-sweet dates from Israel. If you've ever had dates around here, meh, not so much, but dates in Israel are dessert. They are sweet. They are so tasty. And 111 of these were sampled and enjoyed as this, these 2,000-year-old trees bore fruit. Isn't that just the way of it? See, while the world despairs and locks down in fear, God brings to bear. That's an amazing thing, too, because in your heart and in my heart over the last year, he's been sprouting things. He's been doing things. While we all were wondering, what's going on? The Lord's like, don't worry, I'm tending you. I got you in some fertilizer right now, some enzymatic water. I'm tending you. You don't know it, but I am tending you, and I am going to bring to bear. Psalm 92, verse 12 says, the righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. I like that. They shall be full of sap and very green. By the way, if you think about it, on that Palm Sunday, it was date palm branches that were waved to welcome the Lord. Nothing better than sharing a date with Jesus. But listen, listen, something happened on that afternoon. The afternoon of the triumphal entry. We've already looked at that and thought a bit about how, how strange to even call it a triumphus, a triumphal entry that was broken by the weeping of Jesus and, and then would lead into this week of passion culminating in a crucifixion and there were uh, two and a half, three days there, at least two days, Friday, Saturday, that it did not seem triumphant at all. And of course we know the rest of the story, but, but backing up a bit, on that day, the triumphus, the weeping, and that afternoon something happened. Listen to this, John chapter 12, verse 20. There were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. They found out. This guy knew him. Hey, can you give us an introduction? Can you get us an autograph? Can we talk to this, this Jesus? Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, sure, make it happen. That's not what he said. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, we just want an introduction, Lord. It's one of those moments, and be careful, because you can be reading through the scriptures and come across all these strange moments where they make a very simple request, and Jesus gives an enigmatic, mysterious, strange, odd, curious response. Hey, some Greeks want to meet you, Jesus. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What? Was it about the few curious Greeks that evoked such a strange statement from Jesus? Hey, he knew that a group of non-Jews seeking him out 
was a clear sign that the times of the Gentiles was near. It was about to turn. The times of the Gentiles, we call the church age now looking back. Or, or better yet, the age of grace. The year of his favor. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so what began with Israel as a chosen people and an opportunity to bring the light of this truth into the world, what began there was now showing signs of germinating, getting out into the world. And so when these Greeks asked to meet him, Jesus, natural, well, spiritual, correct response was, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified because the times of the Gentiles were coming online. And Jesus called it out. And the event that began these times was the most glorious, triumphant act of grace ever seen before or since. The cross. But again, it didn't seem so triumphant, so glorious at that time. In fact, Jesus described it this way in verse 24 of John chapter 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Again, so strange. These guys just want to meet you. Hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. A grain of wheat falls into the ground, it dies, it bears fruit. What are you talking about, Jesus? And we know. Five days later, Jesus was in the ground, in the tomb. Had he remained there, there would have been no fruit of the resurrection. But, but, but on the first day of the week, Luke 24. As I said on Good Friday, it's one of the greatest words in the Passion story. The word in the Greek is day. Not as in day, not as in daylight, it happened actually just before early dawn, but the word day in the Greek, it's a conjunction that means however, yet, but. Back it up a bit. Look at verse 55 of Luke 24. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested According to the commandment, but, however, yet. Why does this conjunction appear? Because the last they saw him, he was stone cold dead. Their hope was not a living hope, it was a dead hope. They saw him laid out in the tomb. They saw him wrapped in linens. They saw the spices that were laid upon him. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Why? Because he was dead. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. I love this in the Gospels, that there is no eyewitness account of the actual resurrection. I actually talked about that last year in an empty tomb of a room. <laughs> Most depressing Easter service ever. No offense, Jake, Les, Yeva. We just were here in this big empty box, and I was thinking about that all morning long. But we talked about a year ago, the moment of the resurrection... You know, that moment where, and we even sang it in a song this morning, where the breath filled his lungs, you know, where he sat up, where he walked out of the tomb. That amazing, remarkable, splendid moment is not, was not ca captured on video, wasn't written about in the scriptures, wasn't seen by any man. The closest actual account of the resurrection of Jesus is this, Matthew 28, verse 2. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. That's all we get about the actual moment that Jesus rose from the dead. 
You don't hear anyone else describing it because they weren't there. Matthew was inspired, even in that moment, to write what no one had seen, with the exception, perhaps, of a few guards. Matthew 28, verse 4 says, The guards shook for fear of the angel that had come down, and, and they became like dead men. <laughs> That's awesome. Roman guards. <laughs> just passed out, cold, down for the count, dead to the world, comatose. Because of an angel. But why didn't any of the gospel writers describe the triumphant exit of Jesus from the grave? Wouldn't that have been great? Declare that, share that, talk about that. God could have inspired them to write that. Why didn't they? Because the last they had seen him, he was stone cold dead. Peter Walker, in his book, The Weekend That Changed the World, and I would encourage you to look that one up on Amazon or wherever. Purchase it. If you don't want to buy it from Amazon, we can get some other places. But <laughs> The Weekend That Changed the World by Peter Walker. He wrote this. They told it like it was. They did not use fine artistry, papering over all the cracks. Instead, their accounts to this day bear all the marks of surprise as they related with fresh and vivid colors the initially bewildering, almost eerie sequence of events. And so we see in these women a, a surprise, a shock, an unexpected morning. They came with spices because they expected a body. They expected a dead Jesus. They assumed he would still be there. And they brought along their spices to spice things up a bit to finish the work that had begun. And it says, while they were perplexed, so note that. I mean, the very human emotion, they're, they're going, what, what, where, what, what's going on here? While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to, him, to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? And see, that's the point. Let me say it again. Jesus was dead but not anymore. He was dead, but not now. These women, again, had seen his linen-wrapped body encased in 100 pounds, John tells us, of burial spices. Now, it was a rush job because the burial took place on the eve of Shabbat. They had to get this done before Sabbath so as not to violate the Sabbath, and so they were moving quickly, and, and they brought just enough spices to cover him to sustain at least for a few days until they could come back on Sunday and do the job right. But again, they had seen him dead. So, yeah, they were perplexed. Where, where is the body? The word perplexed in the Greek is diapareo, and it means thoroughly puzzled. Thor like, like you look at me when I give certain puns. <laughs> and, and I know it's not a puzzlement in trying to figure out the puns. It's a puzzlement in why would you say that? <laughs> Bewildered, bemused, befuddled, and then terrified. One of the things I enjoy doing when I look at the resurrection story is just looking at the human reaction because they're all over the map. From puzzlement to terror to joy, I mean, it's all there. And here, suddenly, these women are aware of two dazzling angels. Now, this cracks me up. Think about this. Either because the angels had been hidden from them and they go into the tomb and suddenly the angels popped up, woohoo, you know, ah! terror or or even funnier to me is the angels have been sitting on the stone that they had rolled back since they had rolled it back and the women walked right by them straight into the tomb didn't even see them we're not even aware of them strange story years ago a couple of friends of mine were out jogging on the beach at dana point and as they were jogging along the beach, they saw beneath the cliffs there in the rocks a Volkswagen bug upside down that had obviously gone off the cliff. They approached it, 
with trepidation. They were concerned what they would find when they got to the vehicle. And, and they got there and they looked in, nothing. And then they turned around to head back the way they had came. And there was a body. And they had stepped over the body on way en route to the vehicle. They hadn't even seen it. Perhaps because their eyes just couldn't comprehend or wouldn't allow mentally them to, to tune in to what they had seen. So that can happen, and perhaps that's part of what's going on. But either way, there is joyful humor to the story of the resurrection. Because the women hadn't stepped over a dead body. They had walked right by two dazzling angels who had knocked out an entire Roman garrison. Just walked right by them. You know, and we can make all kinds of humorous pictures of this. Maybe they were just talking to it. Did you bring the spices? Yes, I brought the spices, Mary. Okay, but I got that. And then they went. And the angels are going. Or perhaps they were just so focused, you know. Maybe their heads were just bowed in sorrow. But either way, it's just beautiful. Because all of a sudden, and the Bible uses the word, suddenly, they, they're terrified. Suddenly, they, they see these these two men. And the humor continues because the women weren't the only ones who were perplexed. Listen to the angels again. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? The, the angels are surprised. What are you doing here? Don't you remember? Of course it had to happen this way. Angels 1 and 2 are surprised to see anyone approaching the tomb at all. I guess when you live in the supernatural, the natural just doesn't make sense. I wonder often what angels think of us, watching the things we do and going, <laughs> I think, I can't prove it, but I think the Hebrew phrase, oy vey, began with angels. <laughs> watching human beings, the supernatural, watching natural man, natural woman going, I don't get them. I just don't understand. You know what? The opposite is true as well. Hitch your wagon to the natural, and the supernatural will be downright perplexing. Focus on the carnal, and the spiritual life will evade you. It just won't make sense. Remember what Jesus said to the Sadducees, who, who say there's no resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. They, he said earlier that same week, Matthew twenty two twenty nine. you're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. That's your problem, boys. You've looked at the scriptures, but you don't understand the scriptures. Why not? Because you don't understand the power of God. You're thinking with the natural brain and trying to comprehend the supernatural work of God. And then Jesus went on to say, Matthew 22, 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Present tense. Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. That is to say, not only is God alive, I am, but so are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he is currently their God. Supernatural. But the natural man goes, I don't know. I don't get it. Listen, those who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ are soul stuck in the natural world. That's why they deny it. They'll say things like, we follow the science. We've heard that one recently. Follow the science, and then they don't. Because the science, you realize science is not a religion. Science is not atheism or agnosticism. Science is just looking for the truth. Science really came out of Christians wanting to show the truth. Go back and look it up. The early scientists were Christians. Wanting to support and look into and delve into creation and understand the beauty of the things of God. And science today, follow the science. Well, then follow the science. But the problem is if you're only following natural answers to natural questions, you will not comprehend what supernaturally is taking place. And so they come up with dead theories. 
that keep them locked down and in the flesh, captive to the grave. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, for the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So while the supernatural angels must at times look at the natural and not comprehend what's going on, so the natural man looks at the supernatural and has trouble comprehending that as well. Here are a few dead mindset theories of the resurrection. See if you've heard some of these. There's the old grave robber theory. I, I like that one. The grave robber theory. Matthew 28, 11 says, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders, they consulted together and gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Well, first of all, they were not supposed to be asleep. They were a guard. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. See, the law was among Romans, if you were set to guard and you failed at your post, you were, well, it was capital punishment. So they, interesting, the guards didn't go to their commander. They went to the Jewish leaders. Help us out here. We got a problem. What do we do? They, they sidled up with those who were on the same side who did not want to see this happen. Help us out. Say you fell asleep. Say they, the disciples stole the body and don't worry, we'll cover for you. We'll pay some more money to your commanders to keep them quiet. If this should come to the governor's ears, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews to this day, the grave robber theory. It's a dead mindset. Then there's another great one, the mistaken tomb theory that the distraught women went to the wrong tomb. And they went inside and went, oh, no body. Well, then, so did Peter and John. See, the women went and told them, and they had a foot race to the tomb. John got there first. He wants to make sure you know that. And they, they ran to the wrong tomb also. And this would have to mean that Joseph of Arimathea forgot his own burial site. And the angels sat on the wrong rock. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Just go to the right tomb, produce a body, and this would have all been over. Wrong tomb. That dead mindset would have been dead on arrival in the first century. Then there's this one, the collective hallucination theory. The over-emotional women collectively just imagined the whole thing. Why would the lives of the apostles all go down in martyrdom for a bunch of drama queens? It's a fair question. And again, even if it was this collective hallucination, where is the body? Just produce the body, and it's over. So then there's my favorite of all the dead theories, swoon theory. This one just, it's just really, someone who... I'll just read it to you. After 39 lashes, crucifixion, a spear that brought forth blood and water from his side, which is proof of a burst heart, so proof of death right there. After all that, Jesus fainted. <sighs> he swooned, passed out, and then after being encased in a linen body wrap under 100 pounds of solidified spice shell, he resuscitated and busted out of the shell and then rolled back the stone from the inside of the tomb. I mean, how would you even do that? And then single-handedly overcame an entire Roman guard and after that walked on pierced feet out to Emmaus and back into the city, all unnoticed by anyone, finally making his way into a locked upper room. Swoon theory. The natural man will go to great extremes to disprove the supernatural. We see it all the time, even among Christians, how the natural 
tries to, tries to kill off the supernatural, tries to explain away the what? Can I just ask, brothers and sisters in Christ, why do we do that? Why do believers in the resurrection of Jesus try to deny the supernatural work of the Spirit in the world today? I don't get that. I used to be that. And I, I, you know, I guess, to, to be fair and honest, there are probably still some areas where I'm that way, where I just go, hmm, that's a little weird for me. Rather than the spiritual man, the spiritual woman saying, I'm going to test that against Scripture. I'm going to see what the Bible says, and if the Bible aligns with that, I'm all in because this is a supernatural faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 16, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. That is if this most amazing, marvelous, wonderful, supernatural moment didn't happen, what are you, what are you here for? You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But, but, day is the word. Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Listen, I skipped a verse. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And I fear that there are church services that are pitiable because they only hope in Christ in this life. How can you say that? Well, it's when a believer fears death. Why? 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 Or why? <laughs> it's when a believer denies what Scripture describes. Why? Why do we do that? It's when the natural man denies the supernatural. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, "I am." The resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, I love when you answer that. It's a rhetorical question, but please answer away. Do you believe this? See, that's the crucial question. Whether you accept supernatural versus natural or any of the, anything in between. The question is, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? The Bible tells us, Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But my friends, that is a supernatural faith. And if you believe that, then you might want to ask yourself, why do I have trouble believing some of the other stuff that's talked about in this book as well? Back in Luke 24, verse 8, and... They remembered his words. I love that. The angel said, why are you here? Think about, he told you about this, right? Did he tell them about this? Over and over. In fact, his words. This is what Jesus himself told them more than 10 times in the Gospels. If you go to every time that Jesus spoke ahead of time about his death, burial, and resurrection, at least 10 times. And there may be more in the Gospels. Like back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, where he said, the Son of Man, listen to this, see if this is clear, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Does that sound like a parable? I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And, and then... Luke chapter 9, verse 44, he says, and I like the way he puts this, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Over in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus said, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Of course, verse 34 of Luke 18 says, But the disciples 
understood none of these things. Why? The natural man has trouble understanding the supernatural work of God. But Jesus said it over and over and over. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be scourged. They're going to spit on me the whole nine yards. They're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. So it's all good. You can almost hear Jesus after the 10th, 11th, 12th time saying, get it? Got it? Good. This is what's coming. This is what's going to happen. And they remembered, verse 8, his words. His words. His words, and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. And the women just laid into a three-part sermon right there. They got it. If you believe the resurrection, this is what you do. Matthew 28, verse 8 says, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran. So we can add to their perplexity and their trembling Fear and great joy. It's just all the emotion of the day and they took off running because if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's what you do. Three parts. Remember, return, and report. Verses eight and nine. It's right there. I didn't even have to make these up. Remember, return, and report. The first is remember his word. What did he say? What has Jesus said to you? Have you allowed his word to sink into your ears? Because it was Jesus who said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Have you allowed that to sink into your ears? The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Revelation 2, verse 7, he who has an ear, just one, you don't even need two, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. Remember his word. That's where it starts. That's what the disciple does. And then, second, return from the tomb. And this is where a lot of Christians get stuck. Return from the tomb. Don't stay there. What do you mean? That place of death and the flesh. He's not there. He's not there. Don't get stuck in the tomb. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to wander. And we had a free day in Jerusalem. And I wandered into the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. <laughs> I call it that in my head often. <laughs> and I mean no disrespect, but it's smoky in there. It's, it's a very strange experience. To go in there, and it's dark and cold and stony. Somber icons and sorrowful idols fill the structure. The air is thick with smoky incense. Pilgrims move about in a solemn death march. They bow, they, they weep, they kiss a stone where the mother of Constantine decided Jesus must have been laid. It's a walk through a tomb. It's like too many churches, unfortunately. A walk through a tomb. I, I had this incredible urge to stand up and start shouting, he is not here. He is risen. But I didn't want to cause an international incident. <laughs> so I moved through there, you know, with everybody else. And I looked and I watched. And I, I'm mostly watching people. And it was just, it was so heavy and sorrowful and dark. Proverbs Chapter 30, verse 15 says, there are three things that will not be satisfied. Four that will not say enough. First of the three, Sheol. Second, the barren womb. Third, the earth that is never satisfied with water. And fourth, fire that never says enough. What's, what's Solomon getting at there? Seeking meaning and satisfaction in this life only is like staying in the tomb. You will never find it. You'll never get there. And too many stay there. Don't stay in the tomb. Look ahead. Eyes on the resurrection. Not resurrection past. Although marvelous it is, but it informs us as we worship our resurrected Jesus, we're not looking back. We're looking right now. 
because he's here now. Eyes on the resurrection, your resurrection, looking forward, that is promised to come. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, you too will be raised. Should you die before he comes, but as Jesus said, those who are alive and believe in me, that is at the time of his calling out, will never die. Eyes to the resurrection. Don't look back. Look forward. Look to the kingdom. For this perishable, 1 Corinthians 15, 53, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal man must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, oh, death, swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? All the bite is gone. Death has no power. Remember what you've heard. Return from the tomb. And number three, report what you have heard. Verse 10, now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. Now, here's another piece of irony for you in the story. Apostles is apostolus in the Greek, and it means those who are sent with a message. An emissary, if you will, an envoy and an ambassador, an apostolus. But who are the messengers here? <laughs> it's the women. The apostles are sitting there listening to the message, but it's the women who bring it. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. But not a single one of the apostles looked at the women and said, Nice feet. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? That the women bring the message that the apostles themselves were called apostles to bring, and they did not Receive it. The women remembered his word, returned from the tomb, and reported what they've heard. That's what we do. Now, you might hear that. It'd be a great place just to kind of sum up a teaching. We're not even close to done. You might hear that and say, remember his word, return from the tomb, report what you've heard. That all sounds nice at church, but what if they think I'm nuts? Of course they will. Of course they will, because the natural does not understand or comprehend the supernatural. But that's not the question. The Lord doesn't say, remember his word, return from the tomb, report what you've heard, unless you're afraid they might not listen. It has nothing to do with it. The response is not your issue. That's between them and God. You just remember, return, and report. Remember, return, and report. It's so easy to remember. And return and report. Just do that. Verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Dr. Luke uses a Greek term here that's a medical term, nonsense. The word nonsense is leros, and it was used to describe someone babbling with insanity. That guy's leros. It's nuts. He's insane. And it's so funny to me that that was the apostolic reaction and response to these faithful female apostles. I'm just using the word in its meaning. These women brought the message, were sent with a message, and the messengers rejected it. It's fruit and nuts is what it is. Fruit and nuts. If you come bearing fruit, some will always think you're nuts. So I just know that out ahead of time. And that's the way it is with unbelief. And again, I, I say this with a degree of sorrow. That's the way it is even among some who say they believe. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And again, to the unbelieving, supernatural things sound like nonsense. Listen, what you believe about Jesus' resurrection is the starting line. That's where right, the gun goes off and 
Now you're running. But it's the beginning of the race. It's the start line of faith. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, guess what? Your journey is not dead on arrival. It's dead before departure. You haven't even taken a step yet. If you can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and belief in the resurrection of Christ for all its proofs, and there are many, it must come by faith. Belief in the resurrection is an act of faith. And by the way, it is faith that is given to you supernaturally. Whoa, how does that work? Hey, if you're having trouble believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, first thing you do is say, God, help me believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I even, I'm even okay with this prayer. Lord, if you're there, if this is true, if what I'm hearing today is legit, would you give me the faith to believe it? I think God loves that prayer. And he will drop that faith into your heart. And belief in the resurrection will come and you will be off on your way. Because Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes. And listen, by the way, to the post-resurrection comments of, of Peter and John. Within a year of this whole event happening, taking place, they're arrested. They're out in Jerusalem. They're preaching Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. And, and the Jewish leaders say, enough of this. And they arrest them and drag them in. They throw them in prison. They pull them out of prison, bring them up before them. And in verse 18, when they had summoned them, Acts chapter 4, verse 18, they commanded them not, listen, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to make immediate present-day application to what you're about to hear. When they had commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, Peter and John answered and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have heard and seen. Talk about being relevant immediately applicable in a world that is telling you in jobs that are telling you do not speak in that name. You want to work here? You do not speak in the name of Jesus. You do not share about Jesus. You do not talk about Jesus. We are witnessing the systematic shutdown privately and publicly of expressing faith in Jesus Christ. And our answer, as those who believe in the resurrection, is very simply, we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. That's all we know. And you can tell me to be quiet about it. I can't, I gotta talk about this. I mean, what do you do when, like Peter, you have unquestionably seen and heard the truth? And I love what they pray later in the chapter, verse 29. They pray, now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may really be quiet and play politics and do what they're supposed to do in the workplace. <laughs> grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What would have happened in the marketplace? What would have happened in the schools? What would have happened in America if we had refused to stop talking about Jesus? You can't talk about him here. Can't evangelize here. Can't do that here. I'm sorry. I can't help it. Well, Pastor Rick, if, if I did what you're telling us to do, what you're implying here, okay, let me, let me back it up here. I'm not implying anything. I'm saying, how can we not talk about Jesus wherever we are, period. Now, some will say, Pastor Rick, what you're saying, if, if, if I do that, I will lose my job. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, I, I, I know what I'm saying. And I know it's super easy for me to sit up here and say it because talking about Jesus isn't going to cost me my job. <laughs> Let's hope, Joseph, right, that it doesn't ever cost me my job. But I'm not asking you to trust me with this. I'm just saying, do you trust the Lord with this? Now go back and watch 
Watch the light come on for Peter. Back in Luke again, Luke 24, verse 12. We're almost done here. Not that I want to be done. Maybe we'll just go longer. Make those second service people wait for a change, you know? (laughs) Verse 12. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. Now, now John adds to that, of course, that John ran with him. And John, you know, stopped and looked in, and Peter blew by him and went into the tomb. And, and there's a reason for the, the, what people would call a disparity in the gospel accounts. It's not a disparity. It's just v- different witnesses telling what they saw. And you put all the evidence together, and you get this bold, beautiful, full story of what really took place. So Luke just mentions Peter, that he ran he saw the linen wrappings, wrappings only. I like the word only. It literally means by themselves. So as if, you know, folded up and set apart over here. And he went away to his home, note this, marveling at what had happened. But watch this. There's a hint of something that happened. And Paul is the one who records it. Something very interesting And it's the only thing we hear about this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul is writing, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Then he shares the gospel. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, the gospel. And Paul says, note this, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. What does that mean? That means that sometime that day, before evening, before the upper room appearance, after he had run to the tomb and made his way back home, Peter saw Jesus one-on-one in an intimate encounter. Not one of the gospels record that meeting. I would have thinking, I would have thought that'd be important. To share. Tell us about that. Peter and Jesus having that, that end, resurrection Sunday meeting. Somewhere between morning and evening, this happened. None of the Gospels tell us. Oh, well, I'm sure, I'm sure first Peter. T- no. Peter doesn't tell us. I thought about this. You know what? Some things aren't for the witness stand. Some things are just for the witness. There are some encounters that are just for you. There are some things that take place in your life that are just between you and the Lord. The Lord giving you something, sharing a moment with you that is so personal and so intimate. As in this case, Peter never spoke of it, at least in the Bible. Never, obviously, something was said at some point because Paul heard that between resurrection morning and that evening, Peter saw Jesus before the rest did. But we don't know how or what, but we do know this. It bore fruit in Peter's life, and he was never the same. He couldn't stop talking about what he had seen and what he had heard. It changed everything for Peter, and it's Peter who wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. Now, we sang this morning, Jesus is the living hope, and that's absolutely right. He is in and of himself the, the Jesus who was dead and is alive and therefore is our hope alive. And when you're feeling hopeless, hopeless, you look at Jesus because he is the living hope. But get this, the word living hope there, that phrase is Zosan Elpida. Write that down, memorize it, and say it to someone if you really want to freak them out. Do you know what I got this morning? I got Zosan Elpida. Hang on, let me get my mask. What is Zosan Elpida? Hope alive. Hope alive. He has given us hope alive. I love how Strong's translates it this way. Having vital power in itself and exerting the same upon the soul. It is a hope that changes how we live. A hope that changes what I do. 
A hope that is with me and encouraging me and lifting me up on the darkest of days when I want to stay in the tomb or in bed. Hope that is alive gets you up, gets you moving, keeps you focused on the resurrection, your resurrection and the kingdom. Living hope. And 1 Peter 1.8 says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's what Peter had. Note this, back in verse 12 of Luke 24, again it said, Peter ran and he saw the tomb, stooping in, looking, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. Marveling. Marveling is ekthumadzo. It is a state of astonishment, wonder, or rejoicing over the supernatural. There was joy sparked in Peter's heart. Why? Living hope. This hope alive powerfully produces the fruit then of inexpressible joy because once you've tasted the fruit of his resurrection, once you believe, you become hope alive. You become assured of your resurrection. By the time Peter got home that day, and before he rejoined the others in the upper room, Peter was rejoicing. Something had switched. Why? Why was he rejoicing? Because he had seen Jesus resurrected. Let me give you a little different picture of, of Peter on the night, on the upper room, when Jesus appeared. They're all in there gathered together, and they're all sharing these things, and the, the men who had gone to Emmaus, they come back, and they told, and that's later on in Luke. We don't have time for it this morning, but they came back, and they said, we saw it, it was amazing. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there, and he's with them in the upper room, and he says, peace be with you. And in that divine moment, get this little picture of Peter in your mind. Peter sitting against the back wall going, yeah, I saw him. Rather than cowering with the others, maybe in that moment, Peter himself going, yeah, living hope, hope alive. Peter had seen Jesus resurrected and the despair of the weekend dissolved into living hope. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so they gathered together at the Ereva Institute for Environmental Research in the Negev of Israel, <laughs> a privileged few who harvested and sampled the luscious honey-sweet dates grown from the oldest date trees in the world, Methuselah and Hannah. Think about this, bearing fruit that tasted just like it did in the days of Jesus. Amazing. May we taste so sweet. Amen. Jesus said, John 15, 16, I did not choose you. Actually, he did. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain. And it doesn't matter how old you are, Methuselah. I appointed you to bear fruit. Fruit that would remain. So whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. My friends, we have a date with Jesus. <laughs> we have a date with Jesus. And it's on God's calendar. It is the date of our resurrection. And it is guaranteed, and the fruit that will matter on that day, listen, will be the fruit of resurrection. Meaning what? Meaning this, that my living hope germinates living hope in others. The fruit of the resurrection is those who have yet to believe in Jesus, but will believe because they see your fruit the living hope. Proverbs 11, verse 30 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise, he who is wise, wins souls. Oh, Father, may we germinate 
May we pollinate. May we bear fruit in the name of Jesus and because, Lord Jesus, of your resurrection. Even as we speak to you and pray to you this morning, our resurrected Lord, so would you in us, in this fellowship, in your church in the world, Lord, resurrect in us that living hope, that joy, that boldness, that confidence that comes from knowing not only were you raised, but we will be raised. May we be simple enough to, like Peter and John, say we can't help talking about what we have seen and heard. Lord, I pray in these last days, let the world do with us as it will, but give us the boldness to bear fruit for Jesus. Give us the faith to walk with this living hope. And not like people moving around a stone-cold tomb of a church, but alive in the name of Jesus, amen.